welcome to the seventh episode of the Loose Threads podcast. Joining me today is Abe Burmeister, one of the co-founders of Outlier, a company that works with highly technical fabrics and puts them in everyday clothing. We had a really great discussion about the founding story behind Outlier, how the brand planted the seed, selling online, and grew quickly after that. The path forward when you're bootstrapping your business and constrained by your own funding why the brand decided to expand production overseas after primarily starting entirely around the tri-state area, why Outlier dabbled in wholesale but ultimately retreated, which ended up fueling the brand's growth to the next level, and how to manage the pace of running a brand that is agnostic to seasons while still having time for vacation. I had a really great talk with Abe. He's an incredibly intelligent guy, and it's been fascinating to watch this brand scale entirely on their own terms. Here's my talk with Abe Burmeister. How do you? How would you describe Outlier to someone unfamiliar? Uh, I mean, I guess the the Hollywood pitch that we would give is like Patagonia meets Prada. It's technical and fashion, urban and and performance. And and what was the origin of both the brand and then that that saying? You know, the origin myth is which was true um, is that I I was riding my bike a lot around New York uh, at a certain period of my life and. I was destroying all my jeans. I was getting really frustrated. And then uh, at the same time, I was also, you know, I'd want to ride my bike to certain meetings. I was a graphic designer and, you know, some clients I could wear whatever I wanted and some clients I needed to look very crisp. Kept on having these situations where either the weather or like how I needed to look at the end of the situation was getting in the way of what I wanted. And I was like, I really need better clothing for this like if I'm going to be riding my bike everywhere like the stuff can't fall apart and it needs to look presentable I need to be able to move between different social situations um, and not worry about the weather and so I was like oh I'm going to go shopping and I'll buy some nice new pants and then I couldn't find anything and I kept on looking I kept on looking so it's a very classic like what the hell why does this not exist not on the market um I gotta figure out how to make it you know I hit this point where I I was like if I want these pants I'm still looking for them if I want them I gotta go make them so I went to the garment district and went to the the button the little button kiosk down there and started (laughs) asking questions and they gave me you know a list of phone numbers of factories that are out of business, but you know, a few of them were not. I started asking more questions, and eventually, I had a pair of pants, and I had them, and I was like, "These are awesome! Like, this is—I I actually solved my problem. I like I, this works. Uh, maybe other people wanted something similar." So I started thinking about how to, you know, if I could sell them, and I knew a lot more about making websites than I knew about. Uh, selling clothes or making clothes or designing clothes or any of those things, uh, I decided like maybe I can put them online. Around that time, I met Tyler, my business partner, very coincidentally, like my local coffee shop, give me coffee here in Brooklyn. I walked in one day and the barista was like, Abe, like you're doing this pants thing, right? Like I I got like, you got to meet this guy, Tyler. He goes to our location in Nolita, our other location. And, uh, and he's doing what you're doing, but he's making shirts. And I was like, whoa. And yeah, we were both playing around with these sort of technological fabrics. He was riding his bike. He coincidentally lived down the street from me, which was very helpful. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, and he was riding his bike over to work every day across the bridge. And he worked in, uh, at Saint Servant, which is like a men's shirting store. And he would have to change every day because, like, the Williamsburg Bridge is high enough that you break out a little bit of sweat usually when you cross it. Like, like not a big one, like a mile, but enough that, like, your shirt is 
is sweaty when you yeah. when you show up on the other side. So he was like, this is crazy. I'm biking for 10 minutes every day and I have to change my shirt. He just started there, actually. So we had about one year of clothing experience between us. Uh, <laughs> and, and so he started playing around um, with, you know, the idea of like, how can you make a, a more technically advanced shirt that that can handle a little bit of sweat and a little bit of, of motion in your day. Um, and so we sat down, we met and we're like, first we had no idea what to think, but, but we were like playing with the same materials and interested in the same things. And we're like, let's do this. You know? And again, I knew more about making websites than, than making the clothes. So I put some stuff up on the web and then, uh, all of a sudden, it, you know, through some friends talking, all of a sudden it was on a blog and then, then, you know, all of a sudden it was on 30 blogs or whatever it was and five real blogs and a bunch of like small <laughs> blogs. And, um, but yeah, and all of a sudden we had this interest. We didn't even have a, we hadn't even put an email sign up Cause like I was kind of like test building the webpage really like, and so we like quickly put a email sign up form and you know, we're like, okay, wow. And then, uh, we launched, we, we, we went to market, I guess like November, 2008 so the entire economy was collapsing it's like <laughs> state of chaos it was pretty crazy and we had this mailing list and we would uh you know we thought we'd we'd send it out you know we're still working full-time both of us and we were like we we put together the email and we hit send around midnight and we're like all right we'll wake up in the morning and uh, and hopefully somebody will have woken up and like maybe bought something and it'll be cool and literally within a minute or two somebody in australia like bought something and we're like whoa this is kind of crazy um but and so that was our uh, intro to to e-commerce damn so that that was like pretty good or a, a pretty serendipitous in multiple kind of different ways yeah there's a lot of luck <laughs> there's no question there's a lot of luck a lot of hard work obviously behind that luck but um there's no denying that that we got lucky in a few different ways and um yeah, we try not to forget that. Yeah. So that first product was the, a pair of pants then was kind of yeah. where it started. So we started with pants. Uh, the funny thing, like Tyler had actually made a shirt with actually one of our main fabric partners today um, that totally did not do what they and it's actually kind of a formative part of our experience because like I, I got really lucky with the pants. Like I it actually took me a long time, but like when I put the pieces together it was really about finding the right fabric and then making a very traditional pant mm -hmm. and i was able to uh, find that fabric and then there's an economic side which i'm sure you'll want to get into right which is that you know i sat there and i was like what happens how do i sell them like how does this this business work and then i was like oh barney's would if i could sell them to them they would be selling them for like 600 bucks and i was like that's it's more than I've ever spent on a pair of pants that didn't come with a sport coat, right? <laughs> so it's like, I'm not that comfortable. Like, I don't know. It's not something I really want to pursue. Like, uh, fine, I made myself some $600 pants, but I don't know if I want to be selling them. But then I was like, what, do I, what happens if I put them online? And there's so much space in that, that margin and, and range uh, in between the, the wholesale and the retail. And so it's like, hey, this online seems like I could get it to like around the price of jeans I've bought before. And so, and I'm comfortable with that. Like, I understand that, you know, what it takes to buy a $200 pair of pants. That was uh, fortuitous. But, you know, it's interesting. We did, like, in the first year in business, we met, like, probably half a dozen people who who very, like, 
not just like half-heartedly, but like seriously, we're like, yeah, I was trying to make that product, you know, hmm. a different, either on their own or, or inside a brand and they just couldn't make the economics work. It was a combination of factors that really lined up. Like the material was there and, and it wasn't even unknown. People knew about it. They just didn't know how to make it work at the, at the right price. Totally. So I'm curious, kind of, kind of like from a fabric perspective, what what sets these apart? Because I think the there's obviously that tech element, but they also have this very traditional aesthetic to them, or they kind of blend in as if they are not tech. And I'm curious, kind of yeah. how how you sought that out, and then kind of how did it? I mean, that's the critical part of Outlier, really. You know, like if the, you know, the first thing I did, like when I when I was shopping, was like go to Paragon and mm-hmm. like go to well, there wasn't Eastern Mountain Sports was in New York, and and then even like Prada Sport or something. But like the outdoor industry doesn't understand social mobility, right? They're they're really good at making stuff like if you want to go backpacking, if, or be on top of a mountain by yourself, or yeah. or or look like you want to be like by yourself on top of a mountain they're really good at that but they don't have any inherent sense of like social mobility in an urban environment right right? it's just not part of their dna and that was what was missing and it gets deeper like it's into like their economic structures and like how they price things, how they're selling things. Yeah, like, and from the get-go, uh, we were always about, like, make, using these performance fabrics in a way that that we could live our lives. And so that's actually kind of a really important part in the early stages. You know, at first, like, the first year in business, we were, like, a bike commuting company, mm-hmm. right? And we really quickly realized that that wasn't what was interesting to us. Like, we had made the anti-cycling pants. Like, we had made the bike world is about bike is an identity about like bike as a lifestyle as a culture and we had made this thing that was like no i it's an amazing form of transportation but like <laughs> the yeah. point is that you're not a cyclist you ride right. a bike and then you go and do other things right um and so means like, to an end not yeah. the end itself so we like had this point early on where we're like yeah we can't be a cycling company um, and at first we were like, oh, let's just shoot it like photos, not on bikes. And then people will know that you can be on a bike and you're not being on a bike. But no, like the cycling is such an easy thing to grasp that we finally had to like just stop photographing bicycles and just cut it out completely. Um, not in a functional way, like all that functionality is still like in there in the DNA. But what, what we loved was was taking these tech fabrics and repurposing them. Part of it was literally like the outdoor industries too cheap to use the best stuff which was shocking to me you know i you know i entered this i was like oh arcteryx like and patagonia they're using the best possible fabrics and they use pretty good fabrics but they're not using the best like they're all in a very cost conscious environment and and structure um whereas when you're selling in like a menswear fashion environment like the there's a lot wider um range of costs obviously there's super Mm -hmm. cheap stuff but then there's also like insanely expensive stuff and so it's easier to find a sweet spot in that large range rather than the very kind of narrow outdoor range so i'm curious kind of how you took these really technical possibly intimidating fabrics and then kind of tried to make them approachable to that average customer who is it fair to say cares about performance but doesn't like brag about it almost or it's not it's not they're not buying it because of the performance or buying it because it performs and then something. You know, there's a few people who like kind of cross the industries who like, especially like fabric sellers, you know, they might represent a brand that they're selling to 
to Ralph Lauren and then they have a representative brand that they're selling to Columbia or something. And one of those fabric vendors we talked to was like, yeah, you know what? You, you guys like go out here and you shop by hand. It's like kind of like an old garmento kind of way of doing things where we like touch the fabric first. And that was completely instinctual. We had no right. knowledge or anything, but like we cared about how it felt. Whereas like, a, you know, in the tech industry, most people look at the spec sheet first mm-hmm. and like, and, and that kind of leads things. And we cared about how things felt and we cared about how things looked. And so it actually made it a lot easier because we kind of knew what we we're interested in from a just menswear or, or fashion perspective. Um, and then we could eliminate like, you know, there's thousands of fabrics out there. We're sitting at a table, actually, this pile of yeah. fabrics right now. You guys, um, online, you can't see it, but they're, they're there. Um, Stacks. So we... Uh, we literally, you know, it would allow us to very quickly sort out a lot of stuff and like zone in on, on a, a much smaller range of, of things. And, um, you know, we kind of, you know, that, that was really what drove the brand in the early days, like beyond the, that first product was that me and Tyler both really fell in love with technical fabrics. And it's something that we're, we're really passionate about. And we, we enjoy a lot. And so we just kind of dove in and we're like, wow, like nobody's using this stuff. This is amazing. You know, I exists. So like somebody's usually using somewhere, but it might be like a small equestrian company or like the uh, police force in like one town in like <laughs> Germany or something. Yeah. We're like, this is, it was almost too easy in certain ways. I mean, there's huge amounts of hard work, yeah. but we're like, this stuff is just sitting here and nobody's using it. Like, this is crazy. Talk to me about kind of going into the kind of the production and, and that whole side of it. As far as I know, everything's made here in New York, right? Uh, or a fair amount? No, a lot, a lot of it is still made in New York. Um, and then there's like, you know, sort of the secondary outside of New York gotcha. City, like the expanded garment district, you know, a lot of like the bigger factories in the 60s and 70s, you know, moved to New right. Jersey or Connecticut or whatever. And then so we do a good amount. I'd say probably maybe 70 percent of the stuff is in that zone. Um, and then there's some in California and then we're doing more and more in Portugal as hmm. well. Right. Now. Interesting. But when you started, was it primarily New yeah. York? When right? we started, it was New York. Right. It was like walking the garment district, yeah. like going, and it was me, literally. Like I, it was again, like relatively. You know, I was a freelance graph designer, and I had a a major client. Like my main client was um, was over by Grand Central, so I was literally like kind of <laughs> hovering. <laughs> literally just walking across town, you know, like, and in the course of like five, 10 minutes, I would go from like, you know, the beginning of the 20th century to like the, (laughs) the very like crazy high tech side of the 21st. Um, and so that was, that was kind of wild time. Totally. And yeah, so we were very, you know, we, the garment district taught us a lot. Like we learned, you know, good chunk of what we learned just by being in the garment district and hanging out in factories and asking questions and, and getting, uh, taken for small rides. And, you know, it's like just learning, you know, cycling through endless factories and suppliers. No, I mean, yeah, it's a crazy place. And, um, you know, I guess we had reasonably good instincts, you know, there's certainly plenty of mistakes back there, but, um, you know, it's kind of, it's a very like street smarts kind of space where like, and if you have a little bit, like you can go pretty far actually. So it sounds like you start with the fabric as, as the ultimate starting point. And then kind of, I'm curious kind of what the, the development process is like, are you like, I'm curious what, like are you, how are you testing stuff and kind of trials and like, what, what does that process look like? Uh, I mean, it varies, but yeah, we, we often start with a fabric. We, we love fabric. We don't always, you know, 
actually that's not true like we we usually start with a problem really mm. and like think about like what, what what we need like we don't you know there's so much freaking clothes out in this world there's lots and lots of it and a lot of it's crap and a lot of it's really good and so we don't need to make crap and we don't need to compete with people who are really good at what they're doing. Like, so we always are trying to find a spot where we can actually say something different um, and something different in a way that makes a difference, not just like different for the sake of it. So um, we start often with a problem and then sometimes we start with just an amazing fabric and we're like, what in the world can we do with this? But either way, we like try and hit a point where we have a concept of something that, that is different than what exists on the market. Um, and then we start playing around with it. So we start, you know, sewing up tests and wearing it. And ultimately, like if you if it's not pleasurable to wear, then it's not good clothing, you know. So um, that's the first step. But then we, we work a lot with this crazy laboratory in Midtown. A hundred cent, a hundred years of like equipment rammed into like like one floor of a Midtown office building. Like, um, and so we do a lot of tests and like try and, you know, find metrics that, that are useful. Hmm. Um, you can get all kinds of numbers all day, but like the only ones that are useful, are the ones that you can understand and know what they're telling you. Um, and so we do that. And then, um, and then we have like kind of a, you know, because we're still tied to the garment district and, and smaller factories in some ways, we, we often do um, just test products where we'll make an experimental product and do a small run of it and just put it on, on our website I saw some of those, yeah. Yeah, um, and see how people react. And then we try and just ramp, you know, if people are excited and, and or you know, on the same level as us, then we try and push forward and, uh, and grow it from, you know, you know just kind of add zeros, as, you know, to the, to the production run as, until, uh, yeah, you know, we're still trying to do that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, no, no, but it, it seems like a really tight kind of set of skews of like, you know, releasing the product when you need it as opposed to just kind of pumping them out endlessly. Well, yeah, I mean, part of it is just literally like physically like what we're capable yeah. of doing um, and and economically what we're capable yeah. of doing as well. Um, but yeah, like we don't, um, you know, we don't operate seasonally. We, we operate uh, in relation to the weather. So in that sense, we operate tied to the season, but we... Um, experimented a little bit in a few other things but for the most part we've been pretty committed to it from day one and um just because it it offers a lot of possibilities to do things differently and that was one of the things that we saw is like we don't have to put one huge collection out every six months like we can we can just put something out one week and then put something out the next week and put something out the week after that and and build like a, a healthier rhythm in some ways. So I'm curious since, you know, given that you started working in New York and now, as you mentioned, it's kind of, mo- you're moving some stuff towards Portugal. I'm curious kind of what was the impetus for, for moving there and then what kind of benefits and or challenges does that present kind of the distance now? I mean, scale, you know, the garment district in New York is, is still shockingly vibrant, like compared to like what you might expect to be hidden yeah. in midtown Manhattan and like these like 10 blocks of midtown Manhattan. Um, but it's tiny compared to what it used to be. Um, and it's aging rapidly. Like there's, there's very few people in there like sewing, like that are under like yeah. 40, you know? And so there, there's capacity, you know, you just, there's certain things you just can't do. There's, there's technological things you can't mm-hmm. do. Well, that's changing a little bit. Like there's finally people investing a little bit in new york but when we started like there was no new technology in new york and there was no um 
and you're, you know, we didn't have to worry about the scale at that point, but, um, but the tech side is there too. Um, whereas in Portugal, like there's people investing in building advanced factories and there's an energy there and, um, you know, people want to make really great product kind of like the energy that was in italy for a long time hmm. is like now kind of in in northern portugal and i don't know the full reason for it i and i think part of it is is uh the vicinity to zara mm-hmm. um which still does lots of production around there and so i think that that as a base helped them and then there's also the high tech kind of aspect you know like the swimsuits michael phelps is you know like <laughs> the ones that the infamous one that like got banned was made in portugal i don't know if they still make them in portugal they changed the rules a little bit so there's that kind of stuff too and then they also have this tailoring so it's, it's well suited for us like they have all these pieces they have people building new factories they have new technology but they also have this history and, and understanding hmm. of how to make a tailored garment how to make a suit how to right so we don't actually make suits but but it matters when we do a button-up shirt, you know, and things like that. Um, we've been pretty happy with it. But, yeah, there's always challenges and communication and, and whatnot. But it's not like going to China, right? It's, right. Um, and we have nothing against China. There's amazing, amazing factories in China. We don't get into that kind of anti. Like, made in China is going to mean the same as, like, made in Italy at some yeah. point, you know. So, um, But it's also just really far away. Like time zones become crazy and shipping becomes crazy. Portugal is like very, you know, it's a, it's a quick FedEx and the time right. zones are manageable and that kind of stuff. Right. Minus the time zone. It's kind of like L.A. or California from a distance. Yeah, it's like similar. It's trickier. There's not nearly as many flights. That's fair. <laughs> uh, I w- if there was flights like there are now, like we go to Porto and there's literally like three direct flights a, a week or something. So <laughs> and you there. go to Lisbon and you can go to Lisbon and take the train. Right. So it's. Yeah, Portugal is not a huge place, but um, but there's one flight a day basically. And I'm curious, kind of from a fabric perspective, perspective, I saw like that the hype beast had the really nice video following you around yeah. one of those fairs. Like, what what sort of work does it take for you to kind of stay out there and keep on top of what's happening and kind of how grant how deep do you go into that research process? Uh, I mean, we go pretty deep, like we're but it, you know because it's fun. We like hunt and like you know we, we're always looking for material that nobody else has. Um, and at first it was just kind of sitting out there, laying out there for us, but that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Right. So we go to a lot of different fairs. I'm actually, uh, flying to Paris tomorrow for, um, the fashion fair of PV premier vision, which is amazing. Um, that's like the high end European stuff. And, and we go to that fair and like look for the more technical hmm. side of things. But then we also go to like the more technical fairs and we're always looking for angles so that, you know, there's some huge worlds of fabric. You know, this is something I didn't learn this until a few years ago, but it still blows my mind. Like America is the second largest producer of fabric in the world Hmm. still. Um, And you would never know it in the clothing industry. Like you would have no clue because they're like, it's a different thing. They're making Mm -hmm. fabrics for covering your farm. You know, like you've got a a hundred acre farm and you want to cover it, you know, for a month for some reason, like American fabric, there's machines like, and it's all hyper industrial stuff, you know, high productivity um, stuff, but so we're always like digging in those worlds, like what's in the industrial fabric world, what's in the medical fabric world, um, and just looking, and, and you really, it's like kind of panning for gold, 
because we're just looking for for gems that like somewhere in this whole world like was there something interesting and then the hypebeast video that was that was going in a different direction there's a fair it's only every four years which is why i kind of rushed out there when i found <laughs> out about it but it's where they they're selling all the weaving equipment and all the knitting machines and stuff and so that was really just there to try and educate ourselves and learn learn how some of this stuff functions and see Totally. So are you, are you going down like to the yarn right now or are you staying more yeah. at the fabric? We are, we are developing yarns right wow. now. So our, we have a sh- shirt fabric that we call the run weight Merino. Um, and that's a, a yarn that, that we custom spec'd out and it's a blend of, uh, of Merino and a, a thermal buffering polyester. Um, so it's really designed to get like kind of the, the beautiful merino wool feel and, and then the odor resistance and performance that it brings, but uh, but get like some more of that like straight, quick drying, fast, like uh, athletic gear stuff in there as well. And yeah, so we'll keep on pushing on that. It's been really interesting. It's slow. Yeah. Right? Like the, each step you go further down the <laughs> yeah, process. It just slows like, everything down. Oh yeah. It's crazy. It's a little frustrating, but um, we we're on the yarn level for some things, not everything and pushing on that level. And, uh, yeah, we'll see how far we can go. No, that's sweet. So what, so what drives it, drives you to go deeper and deeper on specific products versus not, is it like, is it curiosity? Is it just, you need something that you can't find for that example? Like it literally like was just like full on fabric industry madness. Like we had found something similar and then all of a sudden, like one company got sold to another and like the licensing got screwed up <laughs> and like, and we basically had a product we couldn't make. And then we're like, okay, if we want we we know we understand like what the basis of this product we want is so it wasn't that hard for us to to get that developed you know because we had a reference point and then there's other things that we've been pushing you know now that the we, we really like talking to the fiber people because they don't talk to designers very often and so and and they don't have any stress you know they're not trying to sell us on anything we're not really the client so i think they find it interesting to because they don't have this connection to all the way down you know there's so many people in between so um they like talking to us or some of them do at least and so yeah it's been interesting and you know we're trying to push for products that we're like why doesn't this exist you know it's kind of really the impetus um so i don't really want to talk about like the future stuff we're trying to develop it doesn't exist yet we don't even know if it can exist but there there's certain things where just been like why and then and now we kind of know why but we're like is can we overcome those whys and make something amazing so but then sometimes, you know, if, if an amazing fabric exists and it's in stock, that's incredible. You right. know, it means that other people can use it and whatever. So it doesn't, you know, so it's how much context can we add to, to make it worthwhile and interesting? And like, because there's no point if you can just go buy it down the street. But we still use a few fabrics that are just kind of stock fabrics, right? Suppliers and there's nothing wrong with it. It's amazing and you can move quicker with them. And so I'm curious kind of what the structure of the team you have here and then kind of as you go deeper down kind of that stack. What do you decide to do in house versus what do you decide to kind of work with an expert or someone else kind of outside of the team? We like to learn the hard way, I guess. <laughs> I, I think it's fundamentally like we like to understand the process. And then sometimes once you understand the process, then, then you can kind of get a sense of like, do you want to have to care about this all the time? Or do you want somebody else yeah. to have to care about <laughs> it? And you can make that decision without understanding the process, but then you might actually be missing out on something. We don't have any like magic formula for it or anything. It's kind of hands-on, but we do like to, we'd like to understand what the, what the dynamics are, why things are done the way they are, and then then we make a decision as to like what we want to do. You mentioned it was like twenty-ish people working with you now. Yeah. Did that? Did that, 
did that growth happen kind of linearly or is that that did that happen more recently? No, I mean, it's pretty organic. I mean, the first two years or year and a half, me and Tyler were literally like working full time and then part time, you know, and, and just doing this on the side. And then, you know, we brought in some people to help us ship. A couple of them are actually still with us in, in more important or not, not important. The shipping is really important too, um, but more powerful roles, I guess. Yeah. It was, so it's pretty organic. You know, we just one step at a time. Um, you know, we're, we're 100% bootstrap. I shouldn't say that. You know, there, there's some level of, of loans like line of credit and things like that. But but there's no outside capital in any kind of way. Like me and Tyler own the entire company. We started it with about $15,000 wow. of our own out of pocket. Um, so it was really like buy it for a dollar, sell it for two, you know, prop Joe style. That's what, you know, that's kind of drove it. So we, we make some pants and we sell some pants and we make some more pants and then we make some pants and some shirts and um, kind of add on and, and see where it can take us. Did you find those kind of constraints both like helpful in a way in terms of like what you had to focus on or perfect? I mean, you don't have a choice. Right. <laughs> like when you're, yeah. I can't even say, you know, I've, I know people and I've seen people who've raised money and like, you know, if you're smart about it, like you can spend it very precisely, but you know, anytime like a big pile of money lands on your lap, you're probably going to do something stupid with it to a certain extent. And yeah. so, yeah, like we didn't have, you know, we still did stupid stuff, but, um, we didn't have that much opportunity to just like blow stuff yeah. on, on the wrong direction and stuff. Like, uh, the feedback loop is pretty tight. You know, if we were making mistakes, there were definitely a few mistakes we made where we were like, wow, I don't know if we're going to get past this or not. And luckily we did, but yeah, we had to, you know, play it pretty tight and smart because there was no other option. What have you seen out of, given that the kind of the impetus to, to go kind of e-commerce only was you kind of walked into it slash decided on it from a pricing perspective, have you seen kind of the benefits of that evolve or take advantage of it in different ways or so one of the interesting things is when we we very early on like we kind of accidentally got a storefront not accidentally it was a friend of ours who had this apartment with a storefront and his boyfriend had a hat store in there actually and then they broke up and he it was like oh i need a new tenant in there and so for like about a year or so we had this very inexpensive you know not prime real estate but a very inexpensive storefront um, that we were able to operate out of and we would just open up on the weekends and it's pretty casual. And then eventually he realized that like he could have a bigger living room instead of a store. <laughs> in his living room. Um, so that was over and we were like, Oh, let's find another retail space. And then we we're like, wow, this is really hard. Even just finding the space is hard. Like maybe we should slow down. Like they, we're not getting handed another retail opportunity. We have a little bit of that experience and that kind of hands-on selling and we know what it's like, not in a huge way. And then we also did a little bit of wholesale early on we we spent a lot of time actually trying to build a, a hybrid model where we could um like what we were trying to do was like one store in every city and trying to figure out like a mathematical balance that wouldn't drive up the price too much right so you know we we're playing around in like 10 percent wholesale 20 percent wholesale and then eventually we but what we realized with that is and then we, we built like a whole ordering system for the wholesalers that they could order from our inventory and like you know really try to do some different stuff i guess it worked really well at a couple places like there were a couple stores that like like everything clicked and it was perfect but for the most part it didn't you know we're trying to change a lot of things and reinvent too much stuff and it wasn't you know it was really kind of this weird attack on our attention span for not that much benefit 
and so we killed it. And what was really, really interesting is we, you know, we don't have the ability to triangulate this data enough and we were a growing company, but it really seemed like when we killed the wholesale, it actually helped us, which we were not expecting at all. But like what, you know, in retrospect, what I think might've happened is that it took away an excuse. If you live like 30 minutes from a store that stocks outlier and you want to try outlier, well, yeah, I've, one day you'll go into that store, right? You can be like, yeah, next weekend I'll do it. But like, there's no store, like you, there's no option. You got to go online and buy it. But again, we don't have, we didn't have the right data and set up to like, to know if maybe we just had a nice burst of organic growth during that period. Um, but we know that it was really, really nice not to have to think about it. Wholesale is great for some brands. It's amazing. And if you right. hit the wholesale market right, if you do everything right, then it's amazing because it's got all the little pieces in place for like the hit brand to get the financing, the funding and the and distribution. The audience, yeah. and, and then it's a feedback loop. So, so Vetma obviously is the, the latest example that I know you've, you've talked about. And they killed it, you know. They they hit everything yeah. right, but for every Vema, there's like hundreds and <laughs> Thousands, hundreds <yeah. laughs> of like other brands that like thought they had all the pieces or didn't, but but couldn't crack it, you know. But um, I can't knock it. It's an amazing system when it, when you hit it right. Like the few times we like tried to sell wholesale on like trade show, in that kind of environment, we're like, wow, we are not suited for this. Yeah, I always um, found those shows really odd. Just they're like, odd, and you know they're they're built for professional salespeople of a certain yeah. uh, make and mindset, um, and then there's like the more advanced, like you know, doing a fashion show kind of level, right? And and that's a whole other level of salesmanship and structure. And and if you have the the right pieces, then it's amazing. It just wasn't suited for what we wanted to do, which is like more detail oriented, a little more expensive. You know, that was you know we sat down and talked with a high profile buyer at one point and we were like kind of excited and like we're like yeah maybe we can do this and then they were like yeah we need the shorts to cost this and the shirt to cost this and like and we just sat there looking at the prices and we're like we could make exactly what everybody else is making and deliver it to you because that's what you you're telling us you need right there's but there's no way we can give you anything special because at that price we you know you can only deliver x amount you know we opted for the online because it let us like play by our own rules really because there are no rules online (laughs) now there are but you know we were very early on we certainly weren't the first there were a couple reference models we were able to look at for online direct when we started you know we were pretty early in that space so it was like a lot of making it up as you go along which is good and bad I'm curious from a kind of like a pricing perspective, it sounds like you have a lot more freedom online than you would at wholesale. And I'm curious kind of what, what do you do with that freedom? Like what, what fills that up, but also are there kind of different constraints you have maybe from less from a price, but from like a design or like, I remember when we had, when I was running the men's line, we had the last thing we tried to make was a really boxy tee and it was the worst decision because no one could understand the fit of it online. And it was like, there were so many returns. So I'm curious kind of what some of those trade-offs, if any, you find when, when you're designing for online only. I mean, you have to, you have to spend a lot of time thinking about communicating, right? Yeah. And there's certain products that, that are hard to communicate. Like, I, I, like an interesting example, actually, like we, we've always, you know, if you do something with wool and, you know, there's like a bunch of like, you can always get these really nice, the word is for skipping me, but like a mottled dark gray, like a chart, you know, with like a lot of texture and color. And then if you want a navy, it's always flat for some reason. And if you put the two up online, the, the texture always sells. 
But if you put like just the navy alone, like or navy with another flat thing, it sells fine. But like there's certain things that just happen, like how you know you have to learn how to communicate and like what works and what doesn't work, and and it's a lot of trial and error and and learning and and seeing and testing and. Again, like it's really helpful to be able to do small scale production in that kind of environment because yeah. you, you can learn cheaply instead of learn expensively. And then it sounds like you, you seem to, from a material perspective and the construction, kind of take advantage of as much price as kind of owning all that margin gives you. Again, you know, we started this really or took it to the next level really because we we love. Uh, the material and the fabric and so we don't like to compromise on it stuff has to sell right Mm -hmm. so like we never design with a price point in mind we just kind of like build it and then we try and figure out if it's going to work or not really is like our approach um and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't you know because like we're kind of playing in this space that's left in between you know the traditional pricing structures and an online pricing structure like like i think we've got a, a a lot of cushion in there that that allows us to make compelling stuff that's not like shockingly more expensive than than other comparable things. Um, again, prices is very elastic and in apparel. We'll have people who are like, your stuff is so cheap. You know, if people are used to buying luxury or, or you know experimental designers then like our stuff is actually really inexpensive and I wish there were more people like that. But, yeah. uh, and then like, if you're used to buying, you know, shopping at REI and the gap, like the stuff's really expensive yeah. and you're like, there's a lot of flex space in the middle that we're able to work with. We kind of think about it as trying to deliver like a high value item. We're not really about the price point per se, but obviously like the more compelling the price, the better, right? Yeah. To a point, you know, we just kind of, keep pushing forward and trying to find the, the sweet spots and see what works. And so as a brand has grown and, and scaled since like 2008, basically, what are some things you've had to keep in check or kind of keep contained as you continue to grow? I mean, there's a lot of learning about uh, how to how to merchandise, how to buy, how to you know hire, you know, because very early on, you, hey, you, ha- you show extraordinary growth. If you have any success early on, you're going from, well, like you go from zero, zero. To, <laughs> zero to one, that's infinite, right? And so like the first few years, you're showing these crazy, crazy growth numbers. And then you hire based on just like, whoa, holy shit, we need to hire somebody. And, oh, I guess we have enough money to do it kind of thing. And then um, so we definitely had a painful period where we just kept on hiring. We're like, oh, yeah, we're hiring. We're growing. And then and then realized that we were hiring like too quickly. So that was an interesting lesson. Um, And then we had to like sit back and be like, oh, okay, it's not just like hire every month or something. It's like hire when when mathematically it makes sense. Um, And you have to figure out what that is or what else. I don't know. There's a lot of lessons, infinite lessons in here. You know, merchandising. I guess one of the big ones that I'm still struggling with is is the rhythm, right? So in the traditional wholesale model, there's a certain beauty to like the cycle, right? There's a time when you design and there's a time when you're kind of putting together how you're going to produce it and, and present it and then you present a show and then you have a period where you're selling and like there's a very clear places where people are supposed to go on vacation. <laughs> I'm so jealous of that rhythm, you know, and it's like, we're, you know, at a certain point we're like, holy shit, we need to build pause points into <laughs> this. Like we can't just release something every week for 52 weeks a year. Um, we need like periods where you can rest. And but at the same time, we kind of, you know, the the dynamic like and what online like the speed of online like makes you want to 
be constantly doing stuff. So that's been a tricky one. And, and for some of some parts of the business, we've been able to solve it, but for others, we haven't. So it's, it's kind of a still something to struggle with. And I guess like it's not that different than like how a news organization has to figure out how to be, you know, 24 seven online versus like, oh yeah, we, we got the six o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news kind of thing. Right. Cause you set this pace that you now have to maintain, yeah. if not accelerate. And the internet is, is a, you know, a very demanding beast. <laughs> and then what's kind of the path forward for you? Is it, I mean, I'm sure obviously to continue what you're doing, but are there, are there different areas you want to go to? Are there different products kind of categories to explore? Or is it more just kind of steady ahead? I mean, we're always trying to, well, we're trying to grow like linearly and organically. And then we're always trying to, to make interesting stuff. And we're, we're always really trying to learn something. So, um, you know, we started with pants and then we added shirts and then, you know, outerwear and outerwear, I think we're still a lot for us to master. So like that's a period, you know, something like we've made some really nice pieces, but we, we don't have like iconic outerwear piece or whatnot. And so that's kind of interesting. And then bags we started doing a couple of years ago and that's been a, a huge learning, interesting experience as well. And um, you know, we always like to surprise ourselves and our customers too. So we're always trying to figure out like what else we can get our hands in without, um, without making everything else break. <laughs> Sinking the ship. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Hope this wasn't too painful. No, that was fun. 